have a speaker from that college right now, mm -hmm. Scott Lerner. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here with you guys today. As Jeff said, I am from Boise Bible College, but I'm also, as he said, an Ozark Christian College grad, uh, but I'm not here to rep Ozark, although it is a good school, um, but uh, uh, it really is. I'm, both Ozark and Boise are, are compatible as far as like there's a lot of similarities between the two, but anyways, I digress. Um, my name is Scott, and uh, just to share a little bit about myself, I am married to a beautiful wife by the name of Joy. Together, we have four kids. There. There's a, a wonderful picture of them um, there, and, and we've been in ministry for 19 years. And I say we because ministry ultimately is not something that we do individually. It, it is something that we together as a family do, and so in the ministries that we've served in, We've done everything from youth ministry to associate ministry to lead, uh, lead pastor role. And even in my current role at Boise Bible College, it really is still a ministry to the church. And, and really, uh, the, the reason I joined the, the team over here at Boise is because I believe in their mission. And their mission is this, is that we want to glorify God by equipping servant leaders who build up the church to advance the gospel worldwide. We are not just focused here locally on the Pacific Northwest, although it's a big piece of what we do. We are also focused on what's happening globally around the world. So, so even missionaries that, that come out and go to places to the farthest uh, parts of the world, uh, are a lot of those or a number of those are a part of uh, our institution. They graduated from us. But I'll tell you here locally, one of the interesting things is this, is that we have a, a, a need that's rapidly approaching uh, in the churches in the Pacific Northwest. You may or may not know this, but, but in the next uh, five to seven years, um, or five to eight years, they're estimating close to 70-ish percent of pastors will retire. And this is what I know from my seat and my time that I've spent here in the Pacific Northwest these last 15 years in full-time ministry is, is this, is that we don't have enough graduates coming out of any of our schools combined to fill all of the voids that are coming. And so what do we do about that? Well, for one, I would encourage you, if you know students who have the call of God on their life to, to, to go into ministry, send them our way. We will equip them. We'll get them ready to go into full-time ministry and, and because that is, that is what we do. It's our focus. It's not, we're not going to waver from that. And that's really uh, what we are about because uh, we know there's a need in the church and we want to help the church because after all, the church is the bride of Christ right? Boise Bible College is a bridesmaid to the bride. And so we come alongside the church and, and we prepare people to be lead pastors, to be youth pastors, missionaries, worship pastors. You, you put pastor alongside of it and guess what? We probably equip them to do that role. That is our passion. That is our heartbeat. It's what we're doing. So if you have questions about the college, I'll be in the lobby afterwards. I'd love to chat with you. If you want to receive information on it, we've got some pamphlets out there, but if you want to get our, on our mailing list, we have a little white card out there as well. Fill that out, get it to me today, and I'll make sure um, that uh, I get it to you. If you are sitting here thinking that you might be on our mailing list, let me just solve it this way, is if you didn't get anything from us in the last month, then you're probably not on our mailing list, because we sent out like a bunch of stuff. So if you didn't get anything, you're probably not on it. So if you want to be on it, let me know. Well, let me pray. And then we're going to jump into John chapter 12. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity that we have just to gather is the body, is your body, is your church. 
And Father, as we begin to wrestle with uh, the text out of John chapter 12 today, God, would you just stir in us? Would you guide us? Would, would, would you do the heavy lifting in our souls that, that maybe needs to take place? Father, we know that your word is living and active and, and that it does significant things to us when we read it, when we study it, when we understand it. So God, help us to understand it today. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments where you thought you were getting one thing only to receive another? Maybe it was one of those moments when you got on Amazon and you, you read the description of this one product and you bought it and then you get it and you're like, this didn't match up to what I thought I was getting. Or, or for others of you, it, maybe it was one of those moments that you're in a verbal conversation with a friend and, and you guys made an agreement about what you were going to do. And, and then when everything came out, you realized that what they understood and what you understood were two opposite things. There are times in our lives when, when we as a group of two or more people may see the same thing, we may read the same text, or we may even hear the same discussion, and yet we do not understand it in the same way. And if we can be honest for a moment, this has probably happened to most of us, where we were in the wrong. We were the ones who thought we understood exactly what was supposed to happen, and, but really when it came to the end of the discussion or the understanding, we realized that we are guilty. And if that's you, can I just encourage you in this way and say you are not alone we're going to see this very thing play out in John chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. We'll be there in just a moment. But as we get to continue in the study of the book of John, we're going to witness a moment when, when the people in the days of Jesus thought that they understood who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. You see, the people understood Jesus to ultimately be the king of Israel. So in John chapter 12, I just want to read these first two verses where the text says, it says the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, it's interesting to me, interesting to me here that, that John says that this happened the day after Jesus had this meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And if we remember right, who's Lazarus? He's the guy who died. He was in the tomb for how many days? Four. And then what? And then Jesus brought him back to life, right? And so we learn from the text that you guys probably studied in the last couple of weeks in John 12, 9 through 12, that these people were, were coming out of the woodworks to see Jesus because of who he was, but also because of what he did. The fact that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, and they wanted to see that man to go, is this miracle for real? In fact, verse 11 might be the key here. It says many people were leaving this place believing Jesus. People would come to see Jesus. They'd come to see Lazarus. And the result was that they saw this and said, 
He must be who we think he is. And so here we are in the text in John 12, 12, the day after all of this has taken place, and the people are lining the roads that lead to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus is coming from the east. He's coming from a place called Bethany. That's where he would have been having this meal. And it's about a two-mile journey up and over the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is is just on the east side of Jerusalem, sits at 2,600 feet. And from the summit, you would be approximately 300 feet above the temple courts. So here's Jesus coming, this two-mile truck up and over, and he would see the temple Below, but why is Jesus coming to Jerusalem? Well, as the text says, he's coming. He's coming for the feast. What feast? It's the Passover feast. For ultimately, we know today that he's coming to be the final Passover lamb who'd be sacrificed for the sins of the world. But the city didn't know that right now. But the city in this moment is swelling with hundreds of thousands, potentially uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of visitors coming from all over Israel for this annual feast. And this was a yearly celebration where, where the nation of Israel would remember a very significant moment when God saved his people from the hands of Pharaoh back in Egypt in the days of Moses. And if you remember from that moment, or maybe you, you don't have this knowledge, so let me give you some, some background on it, is, is the nation of Israel was slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, Moses comes to, to his leadership role, and God uses him and goes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go, speaking for God, and Pharaoh says no, and bad things happen, and that happens multiple times until the 10th one. You have the 10th plague, is what we call it where there's going to be the death of the firstborn of every firstborn male in every house. Unless you do what God instructed. And what did God instruct to do in in this text back in Exodus? He says, if you take a male lamb, and and if you sacrifice it, and if you you roast its body over an open fire, and if you will um, take the blood and put it over the the doorposts and, and over the sides, then I will skip your house later that night. And that's exactly what happened. That night, Israel was saved. As we read in Exodus chapter 12, verse 26 and 27, where it summarizes it and says, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Speaking of the Passover, which is what Jesus is going to do, he says, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, hear, hear me, we're now 1,500 years approximately later from that moment. 1,500 times they have been celebrating the Passover feast at one level or another. And the nation of Israel is gathering to, to celebrate this historic event once more. But this time, this time something is different. It's different because Jesus is here. And Jesus has been doing his ministry now for three years. He's coming to the final week of his life before he is crucified. And and the people are lining the roads and and, and they're laying palm branches on the ground. And and sometimes we read that today and and I even think about our churches. uh, You know, we have Palm Sunday where we pull out all the palm branches and we wave them around. And and I, I, I asked myself, I said, 
What do the palm branches mean? Have, have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered why it is that they were laying out palm branches? And in some of my research, this is what I found out is that 200 years before this moment in John 12, during the time of the Maccabees, palm branches were seen as a symbol of Jewish nationalism. So for us today, it would be like lining a parade route with the American flag. You have all these Jews taking these palm branches and laying them at the feet of Jesus as he's walking down the road as a sign of Jewish nationalism. Now, we need to keep this in mind as we, as we move forward in the text. But these people, they were also crying out to Jesus using words like Hosanna, which is a phrase, it's a, it's a word, it's, well, it's a compilation of words, uh, but, but it really means save us. And it carries the, the idea of blessing being spoken in a way is to say, save us and have great success in what you are doing. But then they also said, blessed are you, which really means is you are to be praised. So when we put both of these words together, we realize that they're actually borrowed from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, and I, and I underlined where, where they would come from, where, where the psalmist writes, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This would have been actually a psalm they would have recited year after year coming into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But what's interesting to me is that the people in this moment add to this phrase in verse 13, even the king of Israel. Now this phrase here, even the king of Israel, is not by mistake. You see the people, they desperately, desperately want someone to be sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. They really want a king over their nation once again. And so when we add up all these things, just in these first couple verses... I think what we can deduce from this is that people are expecting Jesus to come and to reign as king of Israel on the throne in Jerusalem. But there's a problem. The problem is simple. It's that Rome is currently occupied by who? The Romans. And so what the Jews are really hopeful for is that there would be a king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem who would kick the Romans out. Give us our country back, you might say. That is what they were hoping, is that they could have their own nation back again, maybe even reminiscing back to the days of, of the first three kings of Israel, uh, Saul and, and David and Solomon, and, and thinking about the glorious days of when the nation had its first kings. But I just want to ask this question, are these people, are they reading the situation correctly? Is Jesus really this king that they want him to be? Is he really the king that's going to come into Jerusalem to sit on this throne and to kick the Romans out? Well, what's interesting to me is that what happens next is probably going to further their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Because what does Jesus do in this moment? He actually enters Jerusalem as a king, like a king. This is what the text says is the next couple of verses. In verses 14 and 15, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. 
Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, John here in this text tells us that, that this donkey was found, but it wasn't just found. If you go read what we call the synoptic gospels, which are, which are Matthew and, and Mark and Luke, what we know from those is that Jesus had actually sent some of his disciples ahead to go find this donkey. There are very specific instructions he has given. You can go read those if you want. It's Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, where, where that is actually uh, discussed. But what John lets us know is that in this moment, what is happening is actually a fulfillment of prophecy that comes from Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. Now, if you were a good Jewish scholar back in these days, and you, you had these scriptures memorized, you knew what these prophecies were, and you saw this happen, and you had this idea of who Jesus was, what would that do to you in this moment? It'd make you think Jesus is coming to reign as king in Jerusalem. And my gut is that these people were probably getting pretty excited at this moment, and yet... They're reading the situation wrong as we know. See, Jesus' approach to them, I don't think is intentionally misleading. But I just don't think everyone picked up on the cues and understood the nuances of Jesus' life and ministry and purpose. In fact, I would even suggest that Jesus' disciples didn't understand what was happening, and from this text, it says they didn't understand for another two months. In these next couple of verses, we read, and starting in verse 16 through 18, uh, the text says this, uh, His disciples, that would be the twelve, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Verse 17, The crowds had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was so that they could see, uh, because they heard he had done this sign. Now let's break this down a little bit because John uses some some words to help us understand some things. And one of those words to understand is understand. (laughs) It says that they did not understand which simply means that they did not have knowledge, the knowledge, to put everything together that they had experienced. They had seen these things. They had witnessed these things. They had lived these things out. They had talked to Jesus. I mean, they had asked questions of Jesus, and, and yet they still did not put it all together until Jesus was glorified. And we look at that and go, what does glorified mean? And can I suggest for us this morning that what glorified means is that Jesus would be back in a state of glory in heaven. Why do I suggest that? Well, in John 17, 5, Jesus says this in a prayer. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Where was Jesus before the world existed? In heaven. So when he says that his disciples did not have understanding until after he was glorified, we can understand that it's a while from this 
moment. But can we pause for a moment as well and just imagine what it would be like to be in their shoes? You are witnessing all these things taking place. You, you think you know what's happening, and, and you're thinking Jesus is coming to reign in Jerusalem on a throne because he's coming as the prophets predicted. You'd probably think that the results would be immediate, right? And that Jesus would come in and he would immediately find his way to the throne and kick the Romans out and we would have our country back again. But as we know today, 2,000 years later, is that within a week, Jesus would not be sitting on a throne. He'd be hanging on a cross. He, he, he would be dead and he'd be placed in a tomb. He'd be buried and And this reality would dismantle any dreams you had of what Jesus was about. I mean, we know today that Jesus, at this point forward, seven days from this moment, was resurrected. But they didn't. And I think sometimes for us in our current state, where we are, we can read the end of the story from the beginning. We we sit there and we go, come on, guys, it's not that hard. But we have to remember they didn't know what was coming next. They, they didn't know that, that Jesus would die, that he'd be buried, that he'd be resurrected. And they didn't know that Jesus would then walk with them for another 40 days after his resurrection until he was glorified. And so really that glorification takes place about six weeks after this moment that he's having on the triumphal entry. Six weeks before they would have understanding of what took place here. But I want to pause in the, in the second half of verse 16 where it says, Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What was it that they put together? What was it that they were able to take the pieces of the puzzle, if you will, and, and, and figure out how they actually all fit together? And I want to suggest to you that it was that it was actually on how Jesus' kingdom was not earthly, but it was heavenly. And to kind of help us understand this, I want to take us to the two men who were on the road to Emmaus the day after the day Jesus resurrected, and, and this account that we read in Luke chapter 24, and it says that Jesus to these two men says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, when we read all the scriptures, we, in our minds, are thinking Genesis to Revelation. That wasn't their scriptures. Their scriptures were Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament as we know it today. And so what did Jesus do? He used all the scriptures. Let me translate that. Maybe all the prophecies that are in the Old Testament and pointed to say, and this was me, 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 and that was me, and that was me, and this is me, and this is me. And all of a sudden, these guys, their minds are blown. They're opened. And Jesus, in essence, did that with his own disciples. He allowed them to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we know it, and they're living it, actually go together, and and really all Scripture points to Jesus. The Old Testament points to Him. The the, the New Testament points back to Him. Everything is 
centered around Jesus. And what happens to these disciples when they put everything together? I think it's an amazing moment in the life of the church because the church is actually birthed on the day that Peter gets up and preaches this amazing sermon out of Acts chapter 2. And what does he do? He actually catalogs things from the Old Testament about how Jesus is who he said he was and how he was the the one who, who, who came to save the world. And what happens from it? Well, we read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, so those who received his word were baptized And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. In other words, 3,000 people in that moment heard the message that that Peter preached of how he took everything that Jesus had been prophesied about in the Old Testament and helped them understand how all those prophecies were actually referencing to Jesus. That would be an amazing day, wouldn't it? I I mean, yeah, that would just be... An incredible day, but I'll tell you, ever since that day, the world has never been the same. But let's come back to this text in John 12. Because here we see that the crowd was continuing to spread the word that, that Jesus was coming. They, they were getting out. They were getting the word. This is before the days of social media, before texting. I mean, they, they had their ways and their methods, but the crowds were, were coming. And, and many of these people were probably coming because they had seen Lazarus who had been resurrected after being in the tomb for four days, right? And, and so John says that these people were, were witnesses. And in other words, what they're doing is they're going out and they're telling people that it's actually the same Jesus that had raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the man. He is the legit guy. You've got to come. You've got to see him. You've got to come see what is happening. Because he is the one who does all these amazing miracles, right? And, and these people come flocking to Jesus. And for some, it may not have been for anything more than, man, I hope he does another miracle. Oh, man, maybe there's going to be someone else who, who's been bleeding for 12 years who needs to be healed. And we can just watch. Maybe there's someone lame or someone blind or someone mute that, that, that Jesus is going to do some amazing miracle. Maybe there's going to be someone dead again. Oh, wouldn't that be cool to see someone come out of the grave? Maybe not four days, maybe five days this time. They were coming to see another miracle. Perhaps some were thinking if this man could do miracles, oh man, wouldn't he be an awesome king? If he could bring people back to the life after being dead, maybe, maybe, maybe this speculation, or maybe this Jesus guy, he could just say something and the Romans would have to just like flee. Oh, we, we could really get the throne back fast that way. But here's the thing. They may want Jesus as a great king. But their, their idea of who Jesus is as king is not aligned with who Jesus actually is. See, Jesus isn't king of Jerusalem. He's king of the world. He's king of the world. In the last verse here in the text, it says this. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, the Pharisees are these religious leaders of the day, and and for a long time, they, they had been trying to silence Jesus. But in this moment, as much as they want to silence him, they find themselves in this little bit of a predicament because now his popularity has grown to such enormous proportions 
that taking Jesus out is going to be even more difficult. It's going to be more complicated than they first thought. And so they're sitting here going, what are we going to do? And, and they even use this phrase saying that the whole world is coming out after him. And obviously that's an exaggeration because the whole world isn't coming to him. But there definitely were a lot of people. But, but this is what I love about this. Is that these religious leaders unknowingly acknowledge that the world should be looking for Jesus. I mean, after all, isn't that why Jesus came? Jesus came, and, and he tells us this in, uh, earlier in his ministry to Nicodemus of why he came in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all know that one. We see it at the Seahawks games probably all the time, right? Someone's holding John three sixteen up. Maybe not today. It used to be that way. Go to a Packers game and you might actually get that. Go, go pack. But it's verse 17. That's key. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The whole world needs to be saved. We may be sitting here going, saved from what? The simple answer is our sin. We may sit there and go, sin? What sin? Well, sin is doing anything that misses the mark of God's holiness. And if we're sitting there going, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, here's a really simple assessment if you want an assessment. Go, go read the book of Exodus. Go find the Ten Commandments and, and begin reading them. If you read them and go, yeah, oh, man, yep, I did that, did that, did that, did that. Well, actually, it only takes one for you to be a sinner. <laughs> but you will find out quickly that, that, we, that we've all missed the mark. We're reminded of, the, of this in Romans chapter 3 where, where the Apostle Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a consequence for missing this mark. That, that there is a consequence for falling short. In Romans 6.23, it says this, The consequence is the wages of, de- of sin is death. And we actually die in two different ways. There's the physical death that we all experience. You know, the mortality rate in the world is 99.9999999999%. Why do I say that? Well, there's this wonderful um, man by the name of Elijah who didn't die. <laughs> Got taken up to heaven in a, uh, in a chariot of fire. And then there's another guy who was an Enoch who lived and then was no more. So we had two guys. Well, if you had Jesus in there, three guys. Out of how many billions of people who lived on the earth. So, I mean, that's like nine. We might as well just call it 100%, right? 100% of us all die physically. We all know that. It's going to happen. The reason for that is because of our sin. But the second one, the type of death that we have is we die spiritually. If we go back to the very beginning of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we read that we are created to live in community with God for eternity. But, but, but when Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they, they were both banished from the presence of God in that moment. 
And we, because of our sin, are banished from the presence of God because of our, our sin, which means we are separated from him. We have died spiritually because of our sin, which brings up the question then, well, then how can we be saved? And this is the question that we all have to wrestle with. And we all, even if you maybe even know the, the answer to this question, we have to be able to articulate this to those around us. Whether it be a family member or a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, an old classmate, how are we saved? And what I love about it is it's not a complicated answer. The Bible's pretty clear. The, the first thing we have to do is, well, we just have to recognize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Do you believe that Jesus really is who he says he is? Do you recognize that you are a sin, sinner and he is the Savior? But it's not just that knowledge. There's a lot of people out there who recognize, well, Jesus is that guy who did die on a cross. But they never go to the next part of accepting him as their Lord and Savior. In Ephesians 2.8, it says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. We are saved through faith, by grace, through faith. We, we are putting our faith in Jesus. Are we, actually, are we actually saying that, Jesus, we want you as our Savior? But it's not just that. And you may be going, Scott, I thought this was a simple answer. Well, it's kind of a, it all goes together. Because this is one part that in some churches we're just not doing anymore. And it's simply this. Are we making a public confession of our faith? Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. A lot of times this will coincide with baptism, which we'll get to here in just a moment. But, but I'll tell you, it's important that we actually know that people believe. And when we do believe, man, we should be telling other people, I am a believer. I am a Christian. I am a follower of, of Jesus. And in this process, it's not just acknowledging that publicly, but, but let me also say this is, well, it's something we don't do very often either in the church, it seems like. And we don't repent of our sins very often, but we need to. Peter says this uh, right before that text we read earlier in Acts 2.41, where he says in Acts 2.38, when they all said, what are we to do with this knowledge that we just killed the Messiah? He says, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to repent. But can I just suggest to you that I think we like confession better than repentance? You may be saying, well, what, what are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. When I was a kid... Um, and this isn't a proverbial story. This actually happened. My mom had a cookie jar, and I love my cookies. And, and she told me the story of something I actually did as a kid, is I had my hand in the cookie jar. I did not ask to put my hand in the cookie jar to, to eat the cookie that my hand was on. 
And my mom came in and saw me, and she told me to stop, so I stopped. But I didn't let go of the cookie. <laughs> I was sorry I got caught. I wasn't sorry what I was doing. I think sometimes our confession is, sorry, God, that I got caught. Oh, man. I wish someone wouldn't have caught me doing that. What repentance is, is if this is your sin over here that you're after, and you're walking towards it, you're actively engaging in it, and you're called to stop by Scripture, by, 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 by the truth of God's Word, repentance is turning the other direction and walking back towards Jesus. That's repentance. Is it something we can do in and of ourselves? We're a part of the equation, but the Spirit of God also has a huge placed a, a big part in that as well. But I'll, but I'll tell you, where's your heart at? And, and if your heart on this is, that's why Jesus died on the cross, so I can keep sinning. Can I just say that maybe there's a heart issue that you need to deal with? If you think your sin is okay, you might need to go spend some time with Pastor Jeff and talk through it. Because sin is not okay. And we're all sinners. I'm a sinner. But the question is, what do we do when we recognize our sin? Do we repent of it? Or do we just confess it and go, go back right to it, like a dog to its vomit? Well, this last piece of, of being saved is baptism. In 1 Peter 3, it says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience though the, through the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. Baptism is probably one of my favorite pieces of our salvation process. And I call it a process because one of the things people always try to nail me down on in all my years of ministry is, is so when are you saved? And I think it's the wrong question. Because we're told that we need to not just hear the gospel, we've got to believe the gospel, we need to confess that Jesus is, we need to repent, we need to be baptized, but also we need to go and live the Christian life. I think that the real question is, are we being obedient to what Jesus has called us to do? That's the heart of it. Where's your heart at in this, in this process? And, and, and Jesus is going to do what he's going to do in the moment that he is going to do it. And we're told in Scripture multiple places what we're supposed to do. So let's be obedient. But it's in baptism where where we get to experience the beautiful reflection of what Jesus did to save us. In Romans chapter 6, it's one of my favorite passages on, on baptism, where it talks about how we are, we are buried, therefore, with Christ. Which means, if we're buried, well, we must have been living. We're living as, I'll just say, the old self. is our sinful self. And we're buried, which means we just died. And when you're under the water, how many of us can breathe? I can't. Maybe with a snorkel, but that doesn't count, right? That's cheating. If I'm under the water, I'm dead. But then Romans 6 says we're raised to walk in the newness of life, which means what? I get new birth. I, I, I was dead. Now I get to be raised to walk in the newness of life through the power of the Spirit of God living in me. And that's an amazing thing. As Christians, we need to be telling other people, not just part, but all of what we need to be doing in the salvation process. And if you're here today, 
and you have never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never confessed Jesus as Lord, if you've never surrendered to him in the waters of baptism, then do not leave today without talking to Pastor Jeff or myself. We want to talk to you. And really what, what I would tell you is, is uh, I got to do some snooping here. Is it filled? No. How long? Okay, well, here's the, the sound's not too far away. This, this is my favorite thing to do. Don't schedule your baptism for three months down the road. How about three minutes from now? You know, people are like, well, I, I don't have the clothes for it. I've done this so many times and I love it. There's nothing greater than going home from church wet because you just said yes to Jesus in the waters of baptism. You will never, ever forget this moment. And if we don't have water, I'm sure we can fill it up. It won't take too long. We can probably go find water somewhere else. Water's plentiful in this area. We can find it. But be obedient to what Jesus is calling us to do. So if that's you, come talk to either uh, Pastor Jeff or myself today. My, my, my prayer for you today is that you're not confused about who Jesus is. My prayer for you today is that you fully understand, or at least have a better understanding of his kingdom. That's not some earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And he came onto this earth to give his life so we could have eternal life. And anyone who puts their faith in him can join this kingdom. It can be you, and it is me. I pray it's you. But what about your neighbors? Do your neighbors know? Do your friends know? Do your family members know? Let's tell the world about who Jesus is. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord God, we just come before you and we thank you just for an opportunity to open up your word, to, to wrestle with it, and maybe even to see it from, from maybe just an angle that we hadn't looked at before. God, we know that your kingdom is not, it's not local to a specific city, but it's really, it's global, it's eternal, it's, it's out of this world. And so, God, would you, would you help us to take the truth of your gospel and the need that we all have, which is to be saved, would you give us the right words to say to our friends and to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members, to those that we interact with who don't, who don't know you? God, that we would begin to see more people join your kingdom as they're saved from their sins, which means they get to have eternity with you. God, that's a glorious thing. So God, guide us and use us to do your work in your kingdom. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.